Well, good morning and Happy New Year. It's a little late for that. I'm told that you can't say Happy New Year after, what is it, January 5th? But I'm saying it anyway because I haven't seen any of you since the New Year. So, Happy New Year. I am so excited. I am so excited to be giving uh, this sermon this morning. And over the, uh, the last couple weeks before, before I, I started writing, uh, God has really put it on my heart to speak on this particular topic. Now, I really like to tear down verses and chapters and go verse by verse and that's actually not what I'm going to be doing today. I'm going to be hopping around to a lot of different verses. There's not going to be any slides up, but uh, I hope that's okay. There is a big note section in your program, so feel free to, to take notes as we go. But we're going, to, we're going to open up our Bibles first to the book of Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. And as you turn there, I'm, I'm going to open with a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father... I just ask your, your blessing this morning. I thank you for the, uh, the beautiful worship this morning. I just I ask that um, you be with us, you be present as I, as I do my best to speak your word and to, to share the truth that I believe that you've laid on my heart uh, over the last few weeks. Lord, I ask that above all things you would be honored and glorified and Lord, we just want to give you all the praise and all the glory this morning. So we'll be in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, and we're going to focus in on verses 9 and 10 right now. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. And it says, Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have a very simple title for my sermon today. It's just one word, sovereign. So we're going to be looking into the topic of the sovereignty of God and what it means in different aspects of history, of creation, of salvation, and of the world in general. So I want to start by giving a broad general overview of what God's sovereignty is, and then we're going to focus in on some of the more specific areas. And this isn't going to be a comprehensive study uh, on the sovereignty of God. We don't have time for that, and I don't have the knowledge for that. But I, uh, I do hope that at least you get a good understanding of what the Bible defines as God's sovereignty. So first of all, we need to define the term sovereign. So the term sovereign is, uh, and this, this, this subject of sovereign is often a huge hang-up for both Christians and non-Christians alike. So I want to be very clear as to what I mean when I say that God is sovereign, but specifically what the Bible means when we talk about God's sovereignty. And I'm not going to sugarcoat anything here. I want to be completely transparent about it. And I'm going to read a quick quote from John Piper here. And he says, God is powerful and authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and authorities. And this means that nothing can stop the plan and purpose of God. Now, I believe this to be a very accurate definition of the sovereignty of God. But my opinion doesn't really matter. The question is, is this the Bible's definition? Is this what the Bible says? And so let's start with the general overview of the sovereignty of God. 
In the broadest sense, what does it mean for God to be sovereign? Well, first of all, God's sovereignty means that from the beginning of time to the end of time, God has everything planned out according to the purpose of his will. That first passage that we read in Isaiah, let's go back to that. It says, remember the former things of old, and this is God speaking here, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So the first thing that we see here about God's sovereignty is this. God wrote the script of history before history began. God wrote the script of history before history began. Now when we talk about scripts, we see oftentimes movies, plays, TV shows, they have scripts written for them. And most of the time, the script is not stuck to completely. They don't always stick completely to the script. Sometimes there's some improvisation. They go off the script. And then they'll come back on. And sometimes there's even movies and shows that are written with the purpose of not following the script at all. It's just kind of a general blueprint of what's going to happen. And we have to get from A to B, but it doesn't matter how we get from A to B as long as we get there. Well, God's script of history is not like that at all. It's not a rough blueprint of how he wants wants it to go. It doesn't just stop at the planning stage, but he's also, in addition to being the script writer, he's the director. And this means that no one can go off script, so to speak. In other words, he's not surprised by anything. God is not surprised by anything, and he can't be caught off guard. The script of history can't be altered or rewritten by anyone. I believe, based on scriptural evidence, that there is nothing and no one that can stop, interfere with, or thwart God's purpose and plan. And Job gives us what I believe to be one of the most comprehensive definitions of God's sovereignty in the Bible. In Job 42, verse 2, he says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And it really doesn't get any simpler than that. God will accomplish all of his purposes. No one can get in his way. Daniel 4, 35 also speaks of of this same thing. It says, He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And again, we look back at that verse in Isaiah 46.10, God says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, that we are saved according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what does this mean? It means that God's sovereignty and his plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. In his sovereignty, his plans and purposes can't be thwarted. They can't be stopped. Not only did God write the script of history, but he sees it through to completion. Nothing and no one can stop him. So next, 
we see that in a very small but actually very important area that God is also sovereign over what we see as seemingly random events. Things that seem to be random, like rolling dice, or as we see throughout scripture, the casting of lots. It's in God's very control. In Proverbs 16.33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, these types of events aren't determined by random chance or luck, but by the very will and purpose of God. There is nothing random. There's no coincidence. God is in control of what we perceive to be random or coincidence. Next, we see that God is sovereign over nature. God is sovereign over nature. In Psalm 135, it tells us that God is in control of the weather, seasons, and the earth. It says here, again in Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. It is he who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Now I encourage you now to turn to the book of Matthew We're going to be in chapter 8. And I'm sure many of you are very familiar with this story. This is the story of Jesus calming the stormy sea. And this this story recently has actually become kind of funny to me, part of it at least. And and I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. But we see the story of Jesus calming the stormy sea. We're going to start in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 8. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. That's the the funny part to me. There's just this massive storm raging around them. There's water coming into their boat, and Jesus is just asleep on the boat. I just find that really funny. But he was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. I can't even imagine the look on, on Jesus' face when they woke him up from his nap. But... He said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? We see from these passages from Psalm 135 and Matthew chapter 8 that God is sovereign over the weather. In the incarnation, in Jesus Christ, we see that he commands the weather with his very words. It's all at his command. Next, we also see that he's sovereign over animals and living creatures. In Matthew chapter 10, it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. God is sovereign over animals, living creatures, and the weather, the earth, over nature. He's sovereign over nature. So next, we're going to come to God's sovereignty in salvation. Now, our salvation doesn't hinge on the choices of man, but rather the sovereign choice of God. And I'm going to do my best to try to explain God's sovereignty and salvation by defining some terms that I believe best line up with this incredible gracious work of God. And these terms can be found throughout Scripture, and the definitions of these terms can be found throughout Scripture. So I encourage you to write these down as we go. Now, the first term that we're going to look at is election. Now, I'm not talking about when you go to the polls 
and you vote, and you get a little sticker that says, I voted, that's not the election we're referring to. Now, this election is God's process by which he chose those who would be saved before the foundations of the earth. It's not done on the basis of works or anything that we've done. It's not based on any power that we possess. And it's the choice of Almighty God. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, when a group of Gentiles had actually just heard the preaching of the gospel, it picks up there. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God. And as many as were foreordained to eternal life believed. In John 6, 37, Jesus tells us that all that the Father gives to him will come to him. He says, all, the, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And him who comes to me, I will not cast out. Jesus says later in the book of John, chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and he says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And Paul continues again in verse 11 later in this chapter. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So the beauty of this is knowing that it's God's gracious love that has saved us. It says, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Christ... You are chosen, you are loved, and you are an adopted child of God. The next term that I'd like to define is particular atonement. Particular atonement. Now when we speak of atonement, we're talking about Christ's death on the cross and that this death was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God that otherwise would have been poured out on all sinners, which is everyone. So that's what we, we mean when we talk about the atonement. It was the wrath-satisfying death of Christ. But what does that first word mean, particular? Well, it refers to the fact that Christ's death on the cross atoned for the sins of all those who would believe. In Ephesians 5.25, it says, Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. When Paul was writing to his fellow believers in Rome, he said, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And in context, us all, he's referring to himself and the rest of the believers that he's writing to. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, for us believers. How shall he not give with him freely all things? Christ's atonement is infinitely powerful. There's no end to its power. But it is limited in the fact that 
it is, a, it is applied to a particular group. Now, that doesn't mean the power itself is limited, but it's applied particularly to the people of God. His atonement accomplished salvation for God's people according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God for all that would come to believe in him. We no longer have to fear condemnation. Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ's death was sufficient. It was sufficient to atone for the sins of all humanity, but it was effective for only God's people. Now the next term that we'll define while discussing God's sovereignty and salvation is total inability. Total inability. And this is defined as man's complete and total incapability to do anything good apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were. The only way that we're capable of submitting to God is if we're enabled to by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Apart from the Holy Spirit's divine working in our hearts, we're helpless. We're incapable of obeying God without the Holy Spirit's working. In order to have faith in Christ, our hearts must be brought to life by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We are absolutely powerless on our own. Now, the next term that we'll define is the effectual call of God. The effectual call of God. Now, this effectual call of God, this call that we we see here is the drawing of the Holy Spirit that stirs our hearts to follow Christ. I spoke earlier that God's plan can't be thwarted, that no one can stop him. And this applies to his call to salvation as well. There's no amount of human struggling or resistance that can fight against his call to salvation. Jesus said in John chapter 6, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And we look again at what Job said in Job 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So if God purposes, if God plans, if God wills to save someone, it will be done. If someone is drawn by God's grace, it is impossible for them to resist. And this leads us into what Jesus says in John chapter 6. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, Jesus is referring to the people of God that have been given to him. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This final term that we're going to define when we discuss the sovereignty of God in salvation is eternal security. Eternal security. This is one of the most beautiful, hopeful doctrines throughout all of Scripture. And this is the doctrine that teaches us that God will not lose a single soul that he has saved. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is both the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Let us run the race. It's not of our own doing. It's not of ourselves. And this should be a massive weight off of our shoulders, knowing that our salvation isn't contingent on what we do or we don't do. The saving work has already been done on the cross. It was done because of the richness of God's unfailing grace. Philippians 1.6 says, says, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We can rest. We can rest knowing that our salvation is secure in Jesus. Nothing can separate us from his love and no one can pluck us from his hand. I believe 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23 sums it up pretty well. It says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly or completely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. He will do it. If you are called by God's saving grace, you can rest in the security of Jesus Christ that you have been sealed for eternity by the Holy Spirit. You can rest in the security of Christ. So lastly, we, we come to one of probably the most difficult aspects of God's sovereignty for us to understand and grasp, especially right in the moment when it's happening. And that is God's sovereignty in suffering. God's sovereignty in the suffering. Now, Romans 8.28 is a verse that most of us have probably heard about a million times by now. Uh, but I'm going to read it anyway to refresh your memory. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to this, his purpose. Now, the suffering that we face in life, whether it's financial trouble, whether it's the loss of loved ones, whether it's sickness, disease, whether it's marital issues, whatever the particular area may be, at times feels meaningless. But I assure you, it is not. I actually believe that the Bible teaches us that the suffering that believers face is meaningful. There's a reason behind it. It's not meaningless at all. God is not just this big bully who's out to get us when we're suffering. The, the, there's meaning. There's purposes behind our suffering. But sometimes it, it can be masked and veiled by the emotions that we're feeling. It can, be, it can be hidden from us because of the anger, of the frustration, of the pain and guilt and sadness that we feel in the, in the moment. We can't see the big picture we can't see through that shroud. But in every single case, there is meaning. 
Well, there's many small purposes of God in, in our suffering that we may never know, actually. There are a few very important and very big ones. The first is repentance. God can use our suffering to turn us to a place of repentance, to turn our attention back on him. When we treasure the things of this earth more than its creator, he may lead us to repentance through our suffering. God shows us that sin and disobedience will lead to our ultimate suffering. And so he fixes our eyes back on Christ, the only one who truly satisfies our souls. He can use our suffering to bring us to repentance. He can also use our suffering to bring us to a place of reliance. The suffering that we experience might also be a call from God to not rely on the crumbling foundation of ourselves and this world, but to rely on the solid, firm, unmoving foundation of the eternal, life-giving God. Paul actually recalls a time in 2 Corinthians when he was suffering, he was burdened by suffering while traveling in Asia. And he doesn't get specific with it, but he does say, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God can use our suffering so that we don't rely on ourselves, to bring us to a place of reliance on him and him alone. Next, God can use our suffering to bring about righteousness. And it may sound harsh, but suffering may also be divine discipline from our Heavenly Father in order to make us righteous. Hebrews 12.6 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And later in verses 10 and 11, it says he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, it would be unloving for a father or mother to not discipline their child. It could lead to a life of continued disobedience. It could lead to a life of pain, of regret. And the pain that comes from lack of discipline is oftentimes much more painful than the discipline itself. God disciplines his children because he loves us. It can be so painful, but the end result is Christ-likeness, is holiness, and righteousness. Our suffering can be used to bring us to a place of righteousness. Next, our suffering can bring us to a place where we actually are rewarded. Now, that may sound strange. Now, the suffering itself is not the reward, but God is preparing a reward for those who follow him. And this is done through our present suffering. In 2 Corinthians, it says, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We cannot see the end right now. 
But we do have an unwavering hope that our suffering right now will feel like absolutely nothing in comparison to the incredible glory that we will experience in eternity. God brings us through suffering to reward us. And finally, God sometimes brings us through suffering as a reminder. A reminder. What's the reminder? Well, it's a reminder of the suffering that Christ experienced. He came to suffer. That was the purpose in his coming. He came to suffer so that our suffering wouldn't just amount to a meaningless mess, but it would be used to purify us. Our present suffering is not God's punishment or condemnation on us, but it is for our ultimate good. Philippians 3 verse 10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Paul said that he wanted to share in the sufferings of Christ. Well, that just blows my mind. He wanted to share in the sufferings of Christ because he knew what it would produce. He knew that there was a purpose behind it. And boy, did he suffer. Paul suffered a lot. But God uses our suffering as a reminder that Christ suffered on our behalf. Finally, we know that God is sovereign. God is sovereign over history, over nature, over salvation, and he's sovereign in our suffering. Romans 8.28, again, it says, For those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What does this ultimately mean? It means that if you are a Christian, you have nothing to fear. If you are a believer in Christ, you have nothing to fear. God has written the script of history. He's chosen his saints to be saved through his grace alone. He causes us to repent and be made righteous and ultimately reward us with himself for eternity. If you are a Christian, you have nothing to fear. If you are a true believer in Christ, there is nothing to fear. You are secure. You are sealed. You need not fear sickness, disease, pain, or even death. There is no reason to fear. Because nothing can thwart the plans nor stay the hand of Almighty God. We can rest in Christ because He is enough. His death was enough to give us hope. And you can rest in Him today. Now, if you are not a believer in Christ this morning, I believe that God uses preaching. He uses song. He uses sometimes radio stations. He uses anything to bring people to Himself And if you are feeling a a call right now to God, I ask that you just um, quietly, where you are, ask God to show you how to do it. And if you can't figure it out, um, you can ask any of the, the worship team members. They would be happy to lead you in prayer, Aaron, Dale, and myself, if there are any questions. But what you must do is believe that Christ's death on the cross was enough to cover your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. You must turn away from your sins. The Bible says repent. That's the word they use is repent. You must turn away from your sins and follow after Christ in obedience. God is sovereign and we can rest knowing that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the work that Christ did on the cross. Thank you that his death was enough to satisfy your wrath, that we don't have to suffer in death, that we know that we are secure in eternal life. Lord, that you have sealed our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you chose to send your son down to this earth to become fully man, but stay fully God, to know what it's like to endure human suffering, but that he stayed the course. He remained steadfast. He didn't sin. He didn't waver, that he went to that cross, that he willingly died and took all of our sins upon him. And we thank you that he rose again on the third day. Lord, we thank you that we can rest in him. We don't need to fear anything. God, we put our, our faith and our trust completely and totally in you. We love you and we give you all the honor and all the praise and the glory this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.